Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's secondhandbookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sarah, and thank you for joining me this week on our journey through The Stand. As always, I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Thank you, everybody, for your patience in the uh, break I took last week. I had a really great time camping in the mountains with my family. We went to North Carolina. It was very relaxing. The Wi-Fi was really crappy, which was both great because I could really disconnect, but for a couple of moments here and there. Um, but also really crappy when you're trying to find your way <laughs> uh, to various locations and your GPS doesn't work. So, <laughs> um, so I'm back. Uh, I had a really great time. I feel uh, refreshed and rejuvenated uh, other than the bout of poison ivy that I ended up with on my knees. <laughs> Don't ask me how I got that because I that sounds really bad. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> uh, no. Um, of course, my brain would go to that. I hope your brains didn't go to that. That's me being very immature. Um, no, I was just, never mind. We're not going to get into that story. It would take me way too long. <laughs> so um, so anyway, so welcome back, everybody. I hope that you all had a very great week. I hope you're hanging in there in this era of COVID. I hope you're staying safe. I hope you're wearing your masks and social distancing. And it's August. So happy August. We are almost to the end of the year. I keep thinking that maybe once we get to January 1st, 2021, there will be a magic reset button and all this horribleness will go away. But I know we have a long road ahead of us. And hopefully this podcast and this book is helping you through some tough times. Um, I know it's helping me, um, giving me something to do, something to focus on. Rereading my favorite book is always comforting to me, despite the subject matter and how it relates to our real life right now. But we will uh, persevere. We will move on. And uh, we will be better for it, I hope. So let's jump into episode 58 of The Circle Opens, chapter 62 of book three of The Stand, now that I've uh, rambled on for almost three minutes. So yeah, so let's recap chapter 61. The judge headed west to Vegas along the way his arthritis kicked up with the rain, causing him to have to stop a few times to handle the pain. I just realized now that that rhymed, which is awesome. So during his trip, he saw a crow hanging outside of his motel room, and he instinctively knew it was Flag watching him, but before he could try to shoot it, it flew away. Two of Flag's men, Dave Roberts and Bobby Terry, had received orders to kill the judge if they see him, but to keep his head intact so Flag could send it back to Boulder before the winter. Unfortunately, Bobby Terry messes it up, Dave shoots the judge when they pull him over, but Bobby Terry is very trigger happy and accidentally shoots Dave and kills him. As the judge is dying, he fires his own gun and Bobby Terry retaliates in a panic, shooting the judge in the face twice, killing him. Flag appears out of nowhere, furious, and attacks Bobby Terry. In chapter 62, we are 
back in Las Vegas with Dana Jurgens. She is currently naked and in the bed of a man who seems to have a cleanliness compulsion as he's in the shower yet again. Dana lays there in bed and she thinks about the judge. Who would have figured that? In its own way, it was a damned brilliant idea. Who would have suspected an old man? Well, flag had it seemed. Somehow he had known when and approximately where. A picket line had been set up all the way along the Idaho-Oregon border with orders to kill him. But the job had been botched somehow. Since supper time last night, the upper echelon here in Las Vegas had been walking around with pasty faces and downcast eyes. Whitney Horgan, who was one damned fine cook, had served something that looked like dog food and was too burned to taste like much of anything. The judge was dead, but something had gone wrong. Dana knows about Indian Springs, too. Pilots being trained to fly the jet planes. But she also knows that that is not the most important thing to worry about at the moment. The important thing is that these people had known something they had no business knowing. The judge coming west to spy on them. Was there a spy of their own back in the free zone? That was possible, she supposed. Spying was a game two could play at. But Sue Stern had told her that the decision to send spies into the West had been strictly a committee thing, and she doubted very much if any of those seven were in the flag bag. Mother Abigail would have known if one of the committee had turned rotten, for one thing. Dana was sure of it. That left a very unappetizing alternative. Flag himself had just known. Being in Vegas for eight days already, Dana had an arsenal of information. She knew about the jet training program, about Flag, and the way people pretended not to hear when you spoke his name. He was the great there, not there. By day, anyway. By night, people would drink beer. They were too afraid to drink anything stronger and start saying dangerous things. But they would tell stories about Flag. She had heard he was a shape changer, a werewolf, that he had started the plague himself, that he was the Antichrist whose coming was foretold in Revelation. She heard about the crucifixion of Hector Drogon, how he had just known Heck was freebasing, the way he had just known that the judge was on the way, apparently. And they never said his name, but they called him the walking dude, the dark man. Ratty Irwins called him Old Creeping Judas. So we discover that Dana is in the bedroom of Lloyd Henried. They're sleeping together, which often leads to pillow talk after. Dana also makes Lloyd take off his black stone necklace, the necklace with the eye, the red flaw. Black stone, red flaw, it seemed to be staring at her. She had a sudden, horrible feeling that it was staring at her, that it was his eye with his contact lens of humanity removed, staring at her as the eye of Sauron had stared at Frodo from the dark fastness of Baradur and Mordor, where the shadows lie. I like that we get another little Lord of the Rings uh, reference there, given the inspiration for this book. <laughs> and I am sorry if I mispronounce Baradur. I've seen the movies. I read the first book, but I'm not sure if that's how you say it. If it isn't, I'm sorry. Anyway, back to the chapter. <clears throat> Lloyd tells Dana about the judge's demise, how they messed it up. He tells her about a lawyer named Eric Strellerton in L.A. who talked about how he wanted to see Vegas run. All Flag did was look at this man, which made him go crazy. 
Flag made Lloyd and Trash Can Man dump Eric in the desert after. When Dana asks about Indian Springs, Lloyd tells her how great things are going, how Trash Can Man is a genius, and while he's not too bright, he's incredible where it comes to weapons. Dana had met Trash Can Man, and she'd been disturbed by him. It seemed like some of the men in Flag's circle saw Trash as their mascot, a good luck charm. Trash often takes a Land Rover into the desert and disappears, but then he'll come back with machine guns, contact mines, teller mines, paratheon, which I believe is a chemical that's been banned but used to be used on crops. Lloyd thinks that Trash will be dragging back an A-bomb someday. Trash has even found flame tracks used in Nam, full of napalm. As Lloyd finally gets stressed to head to Indian Springs, Dana gets stressed herself, always undressing and dressing without Lloyd in the room, because she still has the 10-inch spring blade, and she attaches it to her arm before getting dressed. Dana has been working on the street lamp maintenance crew, and she's befriended Jenny Engstrom, the ex-nightclub dancer. Dana likes Jenny a lot. She thinks that Jenny was somebody she would have loved to have as a best friend. This makes her wonder how it came to be that someone like Jenny ended up out west in Vegas. She thought that Vegas had a rather larger proportion of stupids than the zone, but none of them wore fangs and they didn't turn into bats at moonrise. There were also people who worked much harder than she remembered the people in the zone working. In the free zone, you saw people idling in the parks at all hours of the day, and there were people who decided to break for lunch from noon until two. That sort of thing didn't happen over here. From 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., everybody was working, either at Indian Springs or on the maintenance crews here in town, and school has started again. There were about 20 kids in Vegas, ages ranging from four, that was Daniel McCarthy, the pet of everyone in town, known as Dinny, up to 15. They had found two people with teaching certificates, and classes went on five days a week. Lloyd, who had quit school after repeating his junior year for the third time, was very proud of the educational opportunities that were being provided. The pharmacies were open and unguarded. People came and went all the time, but they took away nothing heavier than a bottle of aspirin or gelucil. There was no drug problem in the West. Anyone who had seen what had happened to Hector Drogan knew what the penalty for a habit was. There were no rich moffats either. Everyone was friendly and straight and it was wise to drink nothing stronger than bottled beer. Germany, in 1938, she thought. The Nazis? Oh, they're charming people, very athletic. They don't go to the nightclubs. The nightclubs are for the tourists. What do they do? They make clocks. Was it a fair comparison? Dana wondered uneasily, thinking of Jenny Engstrom, who she liked so much. She didn't know, but she thought that maybe it was. When people start coming back from the bus stop, headed home from Indian Springs, Dana glances down from where she's fixing a street lamp. She sees the faces, and she sees one that she recognizes. Tom Cullen. Is it Tom Cullen? The wide, smiling, wondering face. Would they send Tom? Surely not. It was too crazy. It was almost sane. But she couldn't believe it. It couldn't have been him. Could it? There's not much time for her to find out because the next morning, around 4 a.m., Lloyd kicks her awake. With him is Whitney Horgan. 
Ken DeMott, Ace High, and Jenny. Lloyd calls her a lying, spying bitch. So the jig is up, and Dana knows it. She tells Lloyd that she gave him VD, and she hopes his (laughs) you-know-what rots off. Lloyd kicks her again out of anger, and Whitney has to hold him back. Ever the gentleman, Whitney suggests that they wait in the living room while Dana gets dressed. Jenny will stay with her. They begin to leave, and Dana tells Lloyd that he is the crappiest lover she's ever had. With the men gone, Dana starts to get dressed, and she tries to reason with Jenny, but it's really no use. Jenny hopes that they wipe out the people in Boulder, because as she says, it's us or you people. That's what he says, and I believe him. Dana points out that people believed Hitler too, but Jenny doesn't believe Flag. She's just scared. Needing to reattach her blade to her arm, Dana fakes being sick and runs into her bathroom to lock the door where she had hid the blade. The others come back in and start banging on the door, but Dana manages to get her blade on without being caught. They take her down to Flag's office, and Dana tries to reason with them again. But again, there's no point here either. As Whitney says, he's the biggest and the strongest. He's going to wipe you people off the face of the earth. Flag is waiting for Dana. Before she goes inside, she tells the others, I was never scared like that in the free zone. I felt good over there. I came over here because I wanted that good feeling to stay on. It was nothing more political than that. You ought to think it over. Maybe he sells fear because he's got nothing else to sell. And as she goes into the office to confront Flag, she thinks, My name is Dana Roberta Jurgens, and I am afraid, but I have been afraid before. All he can take from me is what I would have to give up someday anyhow, my life. I will not let him break me down. I will not let him make me less than I am, if I can possibly help it. I want to die well, and I am going to have what I want. That's one of my favorite passages in this whole chapter, just her stealing herself to face down this monstrous evil. And she already knows that he can kill her, but she's going to go out the way that she wants to go out. Inside the office, Flag is looking out the window. We get a little bit of description of Dana's first impression of Randall Flag. It says he continued to look out long after she had entered, indifferently presenting her his back before he turned. How long does it take a man to turn around? Two, maybe three seconds at the most. But to Dana, it seemed like the dark man went on turning forever, showing more and more of himself like the very moon he had been watching. She became a child again, struck dumb by the dreadful curiosity of great fear. For a moment, she was caught entirely in the web of his attraction, his glamour. And she was sure that when the turn was completed, unknown eons from now, she would be staring into the face of her dreams. A gothic, cowled monk his hood shaped around total darkness, a negative man with no face. She would see and then go mad. Then he was looking at her, walking forward, smiling warmly, and her first shocked thought was, why, he's my age. Randy Flagg's hair was dark, tousled. His face was handsome and ruddy, as if he spent much time out in the desert wind. His features were mobile and sensitive, and his eyes danced with high glee, the eyes of a small child, with a momentous and wonderful secret surprise. Flag is very friendly to Dana. 
He can tell she expected something more hideous, something scary. He asks what they've been telling her about him. Dana says they're all afraid. Lloyd was sweating like a pig out there. Flag laughs and explains that he basically saved Lloyd from a fate worse than death. And he invites Dana to sit, although there are no chairs. Because chairs are for liars. So they sit on the floor, facing each other. They'll sit and talk like friends. Flag does a pretty good job here at trying to persuade Dana that the people out west mean them no harm. They're not at war. They haven't attacked the Free Zone. They haven't even made any warlike moves against them. And the Free Zone hasn't attacked them either. Flag has no plans to attack Boulder. His people are scattered all over the West, California, Oregon, New Mexico, and Idaho. They're vulnerable. They're, they're nothing more than a confederacy. And there is room for the both of them. He says there will still be room for both of us in 2190. That's if the babies live, something we won't know about here for at least another five months. If they do, and humanity continues, let our grandfathers fight it out if they have a bone to pick, or their grandfathers. But what in God's name do we have to fight about now? Dana replies nothing. Her throat was dry and she felt dazed and something else. Was it hope? She was looking into his eyes. She could not seem to tear her gaze away. And she didn't want to. She wasn't going mad. He wasn't driving her mad at all. He was a very reasonable man. Flag continues with his excuses. There are no economic reasons to fight or technological ones. And Dana finally realizes that he's hypnotizing her. She manages to look away, causing Flag's smile to slip a bit. And then she mentions the judge, but Flag explains that away as well. He had only wanted to talk to the judge, as he's talking now to Dana. But the judge has started firing first, killing one of Flag's men. The wounded man killed the judge before dying himself, and Flag is very sorry about that, of course. Maybe that's not how the others are telling it, but Flag is the one who gives the orders. He was persuasive. Goddamned persuasive. He seemed nearly harmless, but that wasn't exactly true, was it? That feeling only came from seeing that he was a man, or something that looked like a man. There was enough relief in just that to turn her into something like silly putty. He had a presence and a politician's knack of knocking all your best arguments into a cocked hat. But he did it in a way she found very disturbing. Flag continues and tells her that Indian Springs is all about defensive measures. Surely the Free Zone will be doing the same thing if they're not already. Dana mentions that when she left, they were just still trying to get the electricity working. But Flag mentions Brad Kitchener and how they've gotten their power going already. He mentions that Mother Abigail had come back, but now she's dead. This surprises Dana that Mother Abigail came back, and it surprises her even more that Flag knew it. She asks him if Mother Abigail said anything before dying. For a moment, Flag's mask of genial composure slipped, showing black in angry bafflement. No, he said. I thought she might. Might speak. But she died in a coma. Dana wants to know more, but Flag dismisses it. He offers to let her go back to the free zone. He even gives her maps that show the seven western states, and on them are markings where his people are. 
as a gesture of good faith and friendship. He tells her, when you get back, I want you to tell them this. That flag means them no harm, and flag's people mean them no harm. Tell them not to send any more spies. If they want to send people over here, have them call it a diplomatic mission or exchange students or any damn thing, but have them come openly. Will you tell them that? Dana agrees, and he lifts his palms to say that's all. And that is when Dana notices something. She knew from the narrow expression on his face that he knew she had. There were no lines on Flag's palms. They were as smooth and as blank as the skin on an infant's stomach. No lifeline, no love line, no rings or bracelets or loops, just blank. They look at each other for what seems like a very long time before Flagg calls Lloyd on the intercom and tells him to get Dana's cycle ready to go. Gassed up and tuned up, left in front of the hotel for her, and that's it. She can go. But just as Dana reaches the door, Flagg stops her and says there's one more thing. One more minor thing. He says that there's one more of their people in Vegas, and he wants to know who it is. Dana immediately thinks of Tom, but tells Flagg, how would she know? The committee sent her. They were very careful about it, just so they couldn't tattle on each other. For all she knows, all seven committee members were responsible for recruiting one spy. But Flag knows better. There's only one more, and she knows who it is. Dana insists that she doesn't. But Flag calls on the intercom again to see if Lloyd is still there, and he answers immediately. He is. Which tells Dana the Flag had never intended to let her go. Lloyd had answered too quickly, because when Flagg gives orders, they jump. Knowing he hadn't run off to get her cycle when Flagg first ordered it, tells her all she needed to know. Dana feels her strength draining away as Flagg talks. And to get herself out of it, she punches herself in the face. After she does so, her will returns, as does her strength to resist him. Flagg asks for the name again, but Dana asks why he doesn't know. He knew about her and the judge. Flag grabs her and shakes her and demands to know who it is. She asks why he doesn't know. Flag screams that he can't see it, and he flings her across the room. As he approaches her on the floor, Dana realizes that the soft and helpful face of reason was gone. Randy Flag was gone. She was with the walking dude now, the tall man, the big guy, and God help her. In pain, Dana tells him what he wants to know. She tells him that he needs to come closer so she can whisper it in his ear. And when he does, she goes to stab him with her blade. But Flag begins to laugh. The blade had turned into a banana. Understanding now what she's up against, Dana runs towards the window wall, kicking through it with her legs. Momentum carried her halfway through, and it was there she stayed lodged and bleeding. Flag begins to drag her back inside, and she understands that while she's dying now, it won't be enough, because it was Tom. He can't feel Tom, because Tom is different. But she knows that eventually Flag will be able to torture the name out of her. She killed herself by simply whipping her head viciously around to the right. A razor-sharp jag of glass plunged deep into her throat. Another slipped into her right eye. Her body went stiff for a moment, and her hands beat against the glass. Then she went limp. What the dark man dragged back into the office was only a bleeding sack. She had gone, perhaps in triumph. 
raging. Flag screams and kicks her body around. The others outside the room grow pale, listening, and Jenny, Ken, and Whitney drift away. Only Lloyd waits, knowing it's expected of him. When Flag finally calls him in, he tells Lloyd to get rid of Dana's body. Lloyd asks if he wants the head, but Flag demands Lloyd take Dana's body out to the desert and set it on fire. Lloyd carries Dana's body to the door. Flag says his name to stop him. Lloyd looks back to see Flag is sitting in a semi-lotus position, floating ten inches above his desk. He asks if Lloyd still has the key that Flag gave him in Arizona. Lloyd says yes, and Flag tells him to keep it handy. The time is coming. Around 2 p.m. that day, Lloyd returns to Vegas smelling like gasoline. In the cub bar, Whitney and Ken are eating sandwiches and drinking beer. A little boy, the boy named Denny McCarthy, is crawling around on the floor playing with his toys. He has different women who look after him during the week, and Lloyd gives him some Hershey kisses. Denny asks why Lloyd smells like a gasoline pile. Lloyd says he was out burning some trash. Denny runs off, and Lloyd sits with Whitney and Ken. They talk about Flag, who's gone again, supposedly, but they're not quite sure. Lloyd says, I think he's around somewhere. I don't know why, but I do. I think he's around waiting for something to happen. I don't know what. They don't think that Flag got the name out of Dana. Lloyd thinks it went wrong for him. She got lucky, or outthought him somehow. And it won't matter in the end, though, will it? First the judge, now the woman, both dead. And neither had talked. Neither had been unmarked as he had ordered. It was as if the old Yankees of Mantle and Maris and Ford had lost the opening two games of the World Series. It was hard for them to believe, and frightening. The wind blew hard all night. So with Chapter 61, we checked in with spy number one, Judge Ferris, as he made his way out west. But of course, he never made it to Vegas, because Flagg had already known and seen who he was. So the judge had been cut off by Bobby Terry and Dave Roberts and killed. While Flagg wanted the judge's head unmarked to send back east to Boulder, Bobby Terry made the mistake of shooting the judge in the face, making him unrecognizable, which of course concluded with Bobby Terry's torture and death at the hands of Flagg. In this chapter, we find out that spy number two, Dana Jurgens, made it to Vegas and had been there about a week. And in that time span, she got to, I guess, seducing and sleeping with Lloyd, Flagg's right-hand man. And of course, after sex, she's able to coax information out of him, stroking his ego, making him feel like a big man. Dana is getting all the information that she needs to take back to Boulder. Things that would scare every single person living there. Not only stories about Flag, but about what he's gathering at the Indian Springs Air Base. Training pilots, the weapons. Trash can man apparently has a knack for sniffing them out along the West Coast and bringing them back. Lloyd even believes that someday Trash will come back with an A-bomb, although the thought at the time amuses him. Dana is aware that Flagg knew about the spy. She does consider the fact that maybe there was a spy in Boulder for Flagg, even on the committee, but that's not very likely. Because he just knew. And I did wonder if maybe Charlie and Penning had told someone uh, but he had left Boulder before the judge had, so it definitely is more likely that Flag has the ability to see such things. 
Which, of course, puts Dana in danger, and it worries her, because when will he find out about her? And it's interesting to see Vegas from Dana's point of view. Everyone in Vegas works 8 to 5. School has started again. Whereas in Boulder, people just sort of do what they want while still pulling their weight, so to speak. For the most part, it seems like Vegas has reformed society much faster than Boulder did. But um, is that appealing? I guess for some who crave the routine, who need that structure of the old society. And of course, a very big difference between Vegas and Boulder is that Boulder had never made Dana feel afraid. Yes, Vegas has the electricity on, they have people working, um, they have rules, they have laws, but they're all terrified. They're terrified of flag. She noticed that the people in Vegas are tense. They don't speak of flag during the day. And at night, they tell stories about him, but they never mention his name, afraid that he'll hear them. Vegas is full of fear. Fear because, as Dana says, the walking dude has nothing else to sell them. So is it worth it to live in the days of old when you're terrified of the man running the show? Are all of the perks and the comforts of the old ways worth going around wondering who's going to be crucified in public next? This person, this man who runs this, he crucifies people for having addiction or disobeying his laws. He turns people's brains into mush and tosses them into a hot desert to wander when they have different suggestions on how to run things. So maybe Boulder was attempting to get back to some semblance of normal life pre-plague, but they were trying to do it in a way that made people happy and kept them safe. There's not just one person running the show. Yes, Mother Abigail is the beacon to which all they're drawn, but they had seven people on that committee to try to come up with fair practices where in Vegas, it's all Randall Flagg. Dana can't help but be curious as to how some of these people ended up there in the West. People like her friend Jenny, who she would have loved to have as a best friend. Were they misled? Easily manipulated? What is the difference between Jenny and Dana? Jenny, who ended up in Vegas, and Dana in Boulder. And like I said before, people are not black and white. They are not just good or evil. There are shades of gray. There's flaws, insecurities, and fears. I'm sure some people in Vegas are evil or crazy, but some may just be looking for the person who will keep them alive and protect them, the strong leader. And they probably see Flag as the stronger one, up against a feeble old woman who plays a guitar. For them, it might have been an easy choice, especially seeing how manipulative and persuasive Flag can be, how warm and friendly he is to Dana before it all goes topsy-turvy. And Dana sees Tom Cullen, even if it was brief, and she wonders if it was even him that she saw, because would the committee really send Tom Cullen? And she realizes what a sane choice that would actually be, because Dana seeing Tom also puts her in danger. When Flag finally sees her as a spy, he does his best to manipulate her into telling him the name. We see that Flag was able to lure people to the West because he's charismatic, he's handsome, he's persuasive. He is assuring Dana that they can live peacefully with the people in Boulder, that what she's hearing from his own people isn't true. Don't believe them, believe me. Don't listen, don't believe what your ears hear, don't believe what your eyes see. Listen to what I'm telling you. That's very 1984 and sometimes very 2020. 
So you can see how people get sucked in to Randall Flagg as a leader. You see Jenny telling Dana that it's either you or us, and she believes Flagg. But Flagg is the one saying, no, 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 no. We'll be, we'll be living peacefully. There's room enough for both of us. Of course, what happened to the judge was an accident. Flagg had just wanted to talk to him the way he had been talking to Dana. That was an unfortunate tragedy. It's almost like he's hypnotizing her into submission, something that Dana realizes that he's doing, and she's able to pull back from it. For a minute, you wonder if Dana will actually believe his bullshit, but only for a minute. And I think maybe for a minute she does. But there's too much about him that sets off red flags. His eyes, his lack of lines on his palms. There is a disturbing aura around him. And of course, of course he'll let her go if she tells him who the third spy is. But Dana is smart. She's smart enough to know that it's not going to go that way. That's not true. If she doesn't tell him, he'll torture her until she does. And then he'll kill her. Two faces to one man. There's Randy Flagg, the friendly leader who seems to have the capability to earn your trust and respect. And there's the dark man, the walking dude, who can chill you with a smile and make you go insane with one look, whose violence can make you wish for death. But Dana realizes something very important. Flagg wants her to tell him who the third spy is. But he saw the judge. He saw Dana. Why can't he see Tom? He cannot see Tom as the third spy because Tom is different. He's got that disability. And Nick was right. They would never think of him as the spy. And there's something in Tom's mind that blocks Flag from seeing him. Dana knows this now. She realizes Flag has his own limitations. But Dana knows that Flag will get it out of her. So she sacrifices herself to protect Tom and to protect the people in Boulder. We didn't see a lot of Dana in this book after the zoo chapter, but for an appearance here and there. But Dana is a badass. She is an unsung hero of this book. She was brave enough to go out west, knowing it could have been a suicide mission. She manages to seduce Lloyd Henry and to get him to spill information about Indian Springs and Flag. And she faced down Flag on her own. As Lloyd said, she outthought him. She was able to resist his hypnosis and his smooth words. And she's able to, without hesitation, kill herself to protect the people she cares about. And flag the knowledge that there might be someone out there he can't find, he can't see. This infuriates him. He is not some all-powerful being the way his followers may think he is. He has weaknesses after all. He knew about the judge. He knew about Brad Kitchener trying to get the power on and dealing with the outages. He had known Mother Abigail had come back and died. Though when Dana asked if she said anything beforehand, Flag hesitates before saying she died in a coma without saying a word, when we know she didn't. So is Flag lying? Does he know Larry, Stu, Ralph, and Glenn are on their way to face him? Or is something else being blocked from him? Maybe Mother Abigail is stronger than he thought. So now we know that Flag is getting pilots trained and weapons gathered. We know so many of his followers are terrified of him. Some of them may even be staying because of that fear. They know Flag comes and goes as he pleases. Even Lloyd is scared shitless of his boss. 
Dana points this out to them, but it seems like Whitney Horgan is the only one who seems to show any genuine compassion or sympathy for her. But that's probably because he's scared too, so really there's nothing he can do for her. So two out of our three spies are now dead. Neither death went the way Flag wanted them to go. He wanted the judge's head unmarked, but got his head <laughs> blown to bits. He wanted Dana to reveal the third spy before he killed her, but Dana killed herself first before he could. And now he can't see Tom. There's a spy out there somewhere that he cannot pinpoint, and his people are becoming more and more disturbed. It feels like in a way things are starting to unravel a little bit in Vegas. Dana also saw Tom, so we know Tom got there safely. And he's already working in Vegas, in Indian Springs of all places. So what has Tom been up to? We'll get a small glimpse of Tom again next week in Chapter 63. That's Chapter 62, you guys. Um, you know, I've reread this book dozens of times. And for some reason, it's this particular reread, maybe because I'm really thinking it through. I'm writing down notes. I'm talking about it with you guys. But damn, like, I never really gave Dana the appreciation she deserves as a heroine of this book. Um, usually it's Fran. Um, sometimes it's even Nadine. Um, not really as a heroine, but, you know, as a strong female character turned tragic. But Dana was a badass. Um, and I'm really sad that she's gone, just like I was sad when Sue died in the explosion. Uh, these two women, has they've been through so much. Uh, getting captured by the zoo making a plan to save themselves when Stu's party came by. They're the ones who, you know, Stu was more of a distraction. They saved themselves. And then they made lives for themselves. And, you know, in order for Boulder con to continue to exist, the judge went out west and he lost his life. And Dana knew that she had to do this for Boulder to continue to ex exist peacefully as well. And she sacrificed herself um, and it's a shame that, you know, she has all this information that she could take back to Boulder and sh that's never going to get there. But I think that that's why Stu and Larry and Glenn and Ralph are on their way out West because those spies aren't going to be coming back. It was a suicide mission for, at least for Dana, but much appreciation for her as a character. I love this chapter. Um, I loved seeing finally how things are going in Vegas since book two was basically, you know, mostly uh, Boulder and the Free Zone Committee trying to get things back on track. And Flag is well ahead of the curve on them with that, but they have problems there. Flag is starting to run into issues and he's not handling it very well. So I'm really excited to see uh, the next chapter and Tom and see how things are going with him and crossing my fingers that he's okay. So if you guys are enjoying The Circle Opens, if you could, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave me a rating or review. That would be amazing. Thank you so much to everybody who's already done so. You guys are amazing. I love you so much. <laughs> it really does make my day uh, to know that you guys are appreciating and enjoying the podcast. You can also get a hold of me at thecirclecloses at gmail.com, or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens. And that's it for this week, you guys. Um, happy August. Before you know it, it's going to be autumn and then Christmas. <laughs> God help us all. <laughs> I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you are all staying healthy. And M-O-O-N, that spells I will see you next week. <laughs>